Grab your Bible. I do hope you have one. It's always good to have God's Word in front of you as we study it together. And you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our ongoing series through Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica. And we come to another one of his thanksgiving texts for this beloved church as we want to look this morning at verses 13 through 16. Of chapter 2. So as I read the passage, uh, kids, see if you can discover why exactly Paul is thankful, because that's going to occupy our attention this morning. So let me read this text and then pray for our time and, and we'll begin. So listen now as God speaks to you through his loving word. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we are grateful that your word is powerful, that it is perfect that you have even given us assurance and a promise that as you send it forth into our midst this day, that it will not return without accomplishing that purpose for which you send it. And so we do pray that purpose would be our joy, and that purpose would be our new life in Christ Jesus, that we might hear with earnestness, always with eagerness and repentance, knowing that he speaks to us now, So send your spirit that we might listen rightly, that I might preach rightly, and that we might see your Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The 1630s in Germany was something of a difficult time. The people were about 20 years into a war that would soon become known as the Thirty Years' War. The economy was in shambles. A famine and disease ravaged the land. And in one of the cities named Eilenburg, there was a local Lutheran pastor by the name of Martin Rinkart. And it's a name that you might not know, but perhaps you know one thing that he wrote during those years that has remained as a lasting heritage in the Christian church throughout the centuries. It was sometime in and around 1636 that as refugees fled from the invading enemy armies, they came upon Eilenburg, and it was soon later that this plague began to ravage the city. It was said that countless children were killed, that neighboring clergymen died, even Rinkart's wife died as well. And supposedly in the span of a year, he himself buried 15,000 bodies, which meant on average he was burying 14 people a day. Somewhere near the end of all of that tragedy and all of that hardship, he sat down to write a prayer for his children about that experience. And you might think that the prayer would have been something of a prayer of lament, which would have been appropriate, a prayer of of holy complaint. 
But he wrote down a prayer for his kids that has probably become the second most beloved German hymn ever written. And it goes by the title of, Now Thank We All Our God. And it begins, Now Thank We All Our God, with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom the world rejoices. And that kind of spirit of gratitude, in the midst of overwhelming difficulty, is ordinary for true Christians. That no matter the calamity that you might face, no matter the tribulation that might come your way, no matter the hardship that Satan strikes you with, true saints, true churches, no doubt true church leaders, are always about the business of abounding in thanksgiving. And that's what we're going to see again this morning as Paul once again continues his theme of gratitude for God's work at the church there at Thessalonica in our four verses that are before us today. And so kids, you know how our country celebrates Thanksgiving once a year. Uh, But what you need to know that in Jesus Christ we're supposed to have a daily Thanksgiving, aren't we? Because no matter where you look, you should find something to be grateful for. No matter what you experience, you have something to be thankful for. And if you just glance down at verse 13, you'll see that adverb there. They give thanks to God constantly. And part of a healthy church, part of a growing model church, of which the church at Thessalonica was, means growing as God's people in this great grace of of thanksgiving. I wonder when was the last time that you thanked God for what he was doing in his church, what he was doing in, in this church. Uh, what might you even be thanking God for? Well, Paul makes it very simple, doesn't he, in verse 13. What he's going to tell us today, and our, our main theme is, we're wanting to see is God's word at work among his people. I want to see what happens when God's word is working in his church. Because you might remember, if you've been with us just in the previous two studies, what we've seen already by this point in the apostolic team's letter to the church at Thessalonica, that the word, the gospel, this good news of salvation and life in Jesus Christ, it created the church, it's strengthening the church, it's shaping the church. And so it's why he said at the beginning of chapter 1 that they heard this word, not as though it was just the word of men, but they received it as though it came to them with power and the Holy Spirit and, and full conviction. And then uh, Paul said even last week in our passage at the beginning of chapter 2 that he delivered this word, the gospel of God, in the power of God, in the midst of, of much conflict. And so what we said last week was is this is the kind of ministry that God uses, a ministry of gospel simplicity. It's a ministry where leaders uh, labor in Christ's authority and with integrity and sincerity along the way. But what the text is now going to do is Paul's thanksgiving continues. He's going to move from the sermon heralded to the word heard. He's going to move from the leader to the listener and point out the ways in which God's word was working there in Thessalonica. And along the way, as we walk through the text, I want to give you three reasons for Paul's thanksgiving Reasons that are our divisions today. First, acceptance of the word. Secondly, endurance in the word. And thirdly, justice from the word. So he's thankful about their acceptance. He's thankful about their endurance. And he's thankful about God's justice. So look again, verse 13, what we're told. And we also thank God constantly. Thank God constantly. You might know at the end of chapter 5, at the very end of this book, he's going to command the church there at Thessalonica to give thanks in all circumstances. 
So what you see here is that Paul is preaching what he practiced and practicing what he preached. He wasn't telling them to be this abounding church of gratitude. And he himself was always, constantly uh, abounding in gratitude. And you see, of course, uh, he gives a specific reason. The most immediate reason for his thanksgiving. We give God thanks constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, you heard it from us and you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So students, what he's saying here is he's not thankful for the mere acceptance of the Thessalonians of God's word. He's thankful really for the fact that they accepted not just the truth of God's word, but that in the preaching of God's word, what they heard was nothing else than God's word itself to them. So I remember being in my first college lit class and we had this large textbook that was full of all of these selections from classics in various genres. And somewhere in the middle of the semester, I think we made it to the poetry section. And I was rather stunned to find pages and pages of selections from the book of Job in the Bible in this college literary textbook. And as stunned as I was to find that in there, I wasn't stunned at all to see how the professor in the class began to dissect and discuss and debate the merits of the literature of Job, because to them it was just the word of a man. But of course, to God's people, it is God's word to his saints. And in a similar way, what Paul is saying here, and I genuinely mean this, it's no overstatement to say, if you grasp the truth of what he just said in verse 13, it can change your life forever. He says, when you heard us preach, you weren't hearing a man speak. That ultimately what you were hearing is Christ speak to his people. Uh, When the preaching is faithful, when the preaching is honest, when the sermon is sincere, what you are hearing is not merely the words of a man, although you do hear a man. Uh, You hear the Spirit working through God's word. You hear God's word itself. It's why even in our own tradition we've emphasized this throughout the ages. So, for example, let me read you a couple of quotes to give you a flavor of what I mean. The Second Helvetic Confession says this, When the word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. The Genevan Confession says something similar. As we receive the true ministers of God's word as God's ambassadors and messengers, it is necessary to listen to them as to God himself. Martin Luther says it's a right and excellent thing that every honest preacher's mouth is Christ's mouth. And then John Calvin, fourthly and finally, says when a man has climbed into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of that man. That's exactly what happened at the church there at Thessalonica. Paul and the apostolic team, they came preaching the gospel, preaching the truth of the good news in Jesus Christ, and they received it not only as true, They received it, of course, as God was speaking to them himself through his mouthpiece. For in every way, that's exactly what preachers are in this day. Much like you would get in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant prophets would show up and they would say, Thus says the Lord. And as that man spoke, what the people heard was God's word. What we need to understand is the same thing happens actually through pastors and preachers in the New Covenant age. As Christ pours forth his truth upon his people through his ministers. And so some of you in here today, you you are teaching and preaching in the church. Some of you are training to teach and preach in the church. Others of you are longing to teach and preach in the church. And what you need to recognize is one of the hardest things to do in our Western culture is to preach God's word in such a way, yes, that it's faithful, but God's word in such a way that the 
preacher's self is hidden, that the Savior might shine through and be magnified and exalted, and the one who's preeminently heard as speaking to his church. Because when the Savior speak, things happen. That's what the end of verse 13 says. You notice as it ends, they received it as the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The language of is at work, it's just the language of energy. More particularly, it's supernatural activity. Uh, Because whenever that word kind of shows up in the New Testament, it almost always is speaking about the Spirit's sovereign, supernatural activity working to bring God the glory that He alone is due. So do you want to see a local church grow? Do, Do you want to see a congregation enjoy the Spirit's supernatural activity? Well, pay attention then to how you think about the preaching of God's Word. For what Paul is saying here is how you think about the preaching, how you receive the faithful preaching, reveals what you think about God's Word itself. And so kids, what you want to think about your own life in God's Word, hearing it and and reading it and loving it, you want to be as though the earth is, of course, to the sun, that you're orbiting always around it that you might receive its light, that you might receive its life. This is acceptance of the word. And surely some of you are in here today and you've heard God's word preached many, many times. Perhaps it's only many, many times for a couple years. Some of you, perhaps, it's many, many times for decades and decades. But you've never truly accepted God's word, heard the voice of Christ contained in the word, No, even from this text, that it's a horrible thing to go hurtling towards the final judgment with a heart that has a playlist full of sermons that you've never truly accepted as God's word to you. So he's thankful for their acceptance of the word. You notice in verse 14 now, he's thankful also for their endurance in the word. He says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. If you've ever read Paul's letters, you know that imitation is a large part of what he understands Christian ethics to be about. He's already commended them in chapter 1 for the fact that the church there at Thessalonica, they imitated the apostles. And now he says, in their endurance in the midst of their suffering, they are imitating the example that belonged to the Judean churches. So students, you might be familiar enough with the book of Acts to know what happened after the gospel erupted forth from Jerusalem. It kind of reverberates out, doesn't it? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, that was beginning to reverberate out. Didn't persecution and hardship strike those churches? You remember this man, Stephen, he was preaching Jesus Christ and he was stoned for it. The apostle James and his ministry was Christ for killed for it. Whenever the gospel seemed to come into a local community, there was this strong opposition Because what Paul is telling us here, isn't he, that any time someone truly accepts God's word, they will face some degree of difficulty. It may not be cultural, political, or vocational persecution in our country that belongs to other countries. But isn't it true that there's always some sort of a cost to following Jesus Christ? That's why Paul can tell Timothy in another one of his letters, anyone who lives, desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted So he's thankful not merely for the fact that they're enduring the hardship and persecution that has actually led to Paul having to leave the city. 
He seems to actually be thankful, if you stare at the text long enough, for the very fact that they, like the Judeans, are being persecuted. Because for Paul, in his mind, someone who truly accepts God's word is someone who's truly going to have to endure in God's word, and you are enduring, Thessalonians, and you should be grateful for it. Because that persecution, that suffering, that hardship, that cost you are enduring is a sign that you actually have truly closed with Jesus Christ and accepted Christ as preached in the gospel. So, students, that means, understand this to be true, you ought not to go running after suffering and persecution in this life. But what Paul is saying is you ought to expect it will come. Don't go run for it. But certainly, true Christians never run from it. Because there is always the need to not only grow in your acceptance of the word, but also your endurance in the word. And now, as he gives his attention to those who are opposing the church at the time, he's thankful for justice from the word. That was in 1735 that Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts, rose up behind his wooden pulpit of the time and I read out the title to his sermon that morning. It was a reading of a title that immediately arrested the church's attention. For he simply said, When the wicked shall have filled up the measure of their sin, wrath will finally come upon them to the uttermost. And you can imagine if your pastor stood up, and that was the first phrase you heard from him that day, that your attention would be arrested Well, that's exactly what happens in 15 and 16 because he's just quoting from the passage from which he preached, which is ours even today. And I do pray it will rest your attention because just notice what he says, verse 15 into the first half of 16. These Jews who opposed the gospel's advance in Thessalonica also killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. It's almost as though Paul in his writing here has taken up the role of a prosecuting attorney. Even to his own people, the Jews, these religious authorities that from the Gospels and Acts we know continually oppose the advance of Christ's church. He's just continuing in, isn't he, this apostolic preaching program that so often in the book of Acts would remind the Jews who would be listening that it was them who killed Jesus Christ. You might know the text in like Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4. For example, Acts chapter 4, Peter shows up before these very leaders and religious authorities and the Jewish people and he says, you killed Jesus Christ. That's the name that I'm proclaiming to you today. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Of course, Paul doesn't have this program for the total removal of the Jewish people, you know, from his other letters. He desires to be accursed that they might be saved. But he's saying that those Jews who are opposing you in Thessalonica, they've been doing this over and over and over. You see, he's laying before them, if you glance down, verse 15, it seems like charge after charge after charge. They killed Christ. They killed the prophets. They drove us out. They displease God. They oppose all mankind. How do they do it? By hindering the very preaching of God's Son in His gospel. And so what I want you to see, even from this first part, before you notice two final things about the last phrases of verse 16, I want you to see the degree to which hindering the gospel's advance does bring God displeasure. 
And notice two things in verse 16. First, sin has a limit. You see, he continues. They're doing this so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. It's language that's used in the Greek in its translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. You'll find it in a passage like Genesis chapter 15 where God has cut this covenant with Abraham and he says, my people are going to go into slavery. They're going to be opposed. They're going to be oppressed. And that is until the Amorites have filled up the measure of their sin. That God seemingly has placed upon his enemies a precise point where their sin will go. And we'll see in just a second, justice will fall upon them. But this is meant, of course, not only to just be a warning to those who would oppose Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a comfort, isn't it, to those who are in Jesus Christ. That the opponents of the gospel, the adversaries of Jesus Christ, they can always and only go so far. That God has them on a divine leash. He's set forth the limit of their sin. And they're going to fill that up in time. And that will bring forth, number two, sin just doesn't only have a limit. Sin deserves limitless wrath. He cries out, it seems like, even with his own verdict But wrath has come upon them at last. He's surely saying here as he's looking forward to the final judgment that they have passed the point of no return. That when Christ returns, wrath will fall upon them at the end. What's Paul thankful for? How is God's word working in a young, growing church? Well, he's thankful for their acceptance of the word. He's thankful for their endurance in the word. And he's thankful for justice from the word. You know, as a, as a preacher, I've often reflected on this story from an old theologian named Thomas Goodwin, where one day he said he went to a church that was pastored by a Mr. Rogers. And he said Mr. Rogers that day seemed to be concerned with his church's relationship to God's word. Evidently, they had been thinking little of it, taking it lightly. And somewhere in the course of his sermon, he, he took his copy of God's word and he held it up and Mr. Rogers began to personate God. I've given you my Bible and it lays in dust and cobwebs in your home. I've given you my Bible and you think nothing of it. Every single day. I've given you my word. And you care not to hear it proclaimed. And so supposedly as the story goes. He began to walk out of the room with the Bible in hand. And before he got to the back of the room. He switched roles. He went back in many ways to being a pastor. And he fell down on his knees. And cried out to the Lord. Lord take not your word away from us. For what hope do we have. If you take your word away from us. And what seems to have struck Goodwin's memory is that he says the floor of that church was deluged in repentant tears because they knew what is a local church without God's word? How can a church grow without God's word? How can a church increase without God's word? And once again, Paul is telling us that the primary means by which God grows his people, brings joy to his people, is through the preaching of of his word, when his people receive it not merely as words of a man, but as what it really is, the word of God. So let's close by thinking about two ways in which you ought to hear this word. Two ways, of course, seen there in our text. Number one, hear God's word and be saved. Ultimately, Paul is so disgruntled with the Jewish opposition to the church, it's because they prevent 
the preaching of the gospel, that Gentiles might be saved. Uh, We know from the beginning portion of this letter what he's so thankful for, right from the outset, is that they had received this word in the midst of their affliction, that they had turned from idols to serve the living God, that the preaching of God's word, they knew it as God's word. They received it with power, with the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. The Thessalonian church, why is Paul so thankful? They heard God's word and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now friend, I don't know if you're in here today and you've reached the past or you've reached the point where you're past its return, that you've heaped up your sins to the limit. You must know from the preaching of this text that that is possible. But I don't know that. You don't know that. What we do know is this, don't we? That the very Christ that's proclaimed to you in this text has told you, assuredly this day, just as it was with the Thessalonians, if you turn from your sin and trust in Him, what you get is life instead of death, salvation instead of condemnation, joy instead of judgment. Don't go with a heart full of a sermon playlist all the way to hell. Take this sermon and be saved. Not only hear God's word and be saved, but those of you already in Christ, of course, hear God's word and be strengthened. Be strengthened. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Paul's already said in chapter 1 that they received the word in the midst of their affliction with much joy. How is it that they're continuing? How is it that they're persevering? How is it that they're enduring? Well, their life is orbiting, isn't it, around God's word. Some of you can recall this memorable event from the Summer Olympics in Barcelona in 1992. A British sprinter by the name of Derek Redmond was running in a 400-meter semifinal. It was about 150 meters into that one lap around the track that he pulled up. Evidently, he had tore his hamstring. Knowing that his Olympics was over, he began to hop and hobble another 150 meters and then we came down the last straightaway. He had this look on his face, I can't make it anymore. A man ran down from the stands. And all the security was trying to get him out of there. But this man came through all the security and he began to hold up his son. Because his dad had raced down to get him all the way to the end. And don't you know that God's word, the spirit bringing you God's son. And the preaching of his word does the exact same thing for you. You can't make it to the end without God. In the midst of your weakness, you can't make it without his son. So as persecution comes, as opposition rises, as troubles ensue, as temptations fall, what's going to ensure that you make it to the end? What's going to ensure that we make it to the end? Wasn't it our acceptance of the word and endurance in the world, always remembering God's justice from the word? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would grow us in our delight in hearing your word preached, hearing it read, that you would help us to meditate on it, knowing that it brings us to Jesus Christ, who alone has the words of life. Father, some in this room need to be saved. Many in this room need to be strengthened. And we thank you that we have a firm foundation in your truth. And that you would do your sovereign 
supernatural activity in the midst of every heart, that they might increase in the calling to which you have called them to, which is hope and new life in your Son. And we do pray these things in his precious name. Amen.